This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Whenever we see these statistics about teenagers or young adults leaving the church, it can really be disheartening. And you sometimes wonder, are all of these younger churchgoers really abandoning Christianity because they understood it and they rejected it? Or could it be, at least for some of them, that they don't understand the God they claim to reject because they never really learned or learned to love his word? This is an area that's really of vital importance for Christian families. How do you instill the knowledge of the Word of God and a love for the Word of God in your kids? We're going to talk about that today. Danica Cooley is joining us, a homeschool mother of four. She's also an award-winning children's author and Bible curriculum developer. The name of her book is Help Your Kids Learn and Love the Bible. Danica, welcome. It's great to have you with us. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Janet. Sure thing. What are your thoughts on how well Christian kids these days really tend to understand their Bibles? Well, I think that we can see in statistics that it's improving at least how our young teens regard the Bible. Um, They see it as sacred literature, and they are reading it more often. But I like to think about um, biblical literacy in the same way that you would think about literacy with a child um, learning to read. Mm -hmm. You know, we read to our kids, and then we read with our kids, and then we have in-depth discussions as our kids are reading on their own, and we continue to read with our kids later on um, important things, and yet we treat the Bible differently. So I think as parents, um, there's a lot that we can do to tweak what we're already doing in our homes to help guarantee that our our children um, are biblically literate when they leave our homes. Yeah, I think you're right on the money about that. I'd be curious for you to expand a little on what you just said, that we do read to our kids. I know I have from the moment they were born. I was taking out the board books and reading to them <laughs> and reading with them and practicing reading with them. But why is it, do you think, that we don't do that with the Bible as much as we do it with storybooks and other kinds of books like that? You know, I, I think I think we have a specialization culture where we really think that other people are specialized and able to deal with teaching our kids things that we aren't able to do. And I don't think that that's how God set up the family. I I like to think about God's original design when considering how we should function in our lives. And we can see in, in books like Joel and Ezra and Nehemiah that God directs, um, his people to stand together for the reading of the word down to infants. And we know that he put his, he put families together as the basic unit. And we are called to read scripture with our kids. We see that in Deuteronomy six and 11 and Psalm 119. So I think when we read and discuss the, the Bible as a family, it communicates to our kids that God's word is important that we can learn about the Bible together, and that the family is committed to um, raising our children and to living for the Lord. And I think a lot of times parents 
don't feel comfortable reading the Bible with their kids because maybe they haven't read it themselves all the way through. And I just, I just um, want to encourage parents that you can read the Bible the first time through with your kids. Um, it's okay to do it that way, because um, the Bible is a story, and God has fitted us to understand story, and the Bible has overarching themes. And if we stick to the overarching themes of Scripture, um, we are going to be faithful to read the Bible well. And our kids understand story just like we do. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, how many of us say, well, when we were in Sunday school, we learned all the big stories of the Bible. We'd learned about Adam and Eve. We learned about Jonah. We learned about Daniel on and on and on and talked about Jesus, the parables, etc. There are so many parts of scripture that you could emphasize. How would you advise parents who have not read the Bible with their kids to begin? Say if they have kids who are in elementary school, for example, and they're listening to you and they're saying, you're right. I need to read the Bible with my kids. This needs to be the centerpiece of our home. Where do I begin? Should I just open up in Genesis in my King James or my ESV and start reading from there? Should I go to a children's Bible? What what would you recommend? Well, you you absolutely can start in Genesis. Um, I always recommend that the parents either start in Genesis or that they start in, in Matthew. But what I find is that parents tend to have three um, pretty basic concerns that the Bible is either too big to read with their kids, that it's too hard, or that it's too edgy. (laughs) Um, And I would say that there are some parts of the Bible that may be too edgy for your five-year-old. And and I think it's okay the first time through the Bible with your five-year-old to skip those parts. Um, We didn't read Judges 19 with our kids until they got to uh, high school, (laughs) and because it's a it's a terrible story. And I wanted my kids to have um, a clear understanding of who God is, who we are, and our need for salvation, God's plan for salvation, and Jesus's commands for his followers. But they didn't need that story in lower elementary school. So it is good to preview what you're going to (laughs) be going through. But, um, you know, with your, with your elementary school kids, like you said, if you just read um, a chapter a day and discuss it, and you skip maybe the edgier ones, you're talking about like a 15-minute-a-day investment of your time. Um, and you can do that. And, you know, we, we tend to think the Bible's too big because I'm like my study Bible is this massive tome. Yes. But um, the, the word count of our Bibles is actually the same as like 24 copies of um, Charlotte's Web. Oh, wow. If you can read... 24 chapter books to your kids, you can read the Bible with your kids. So, um, and, and you don't have to do it all at once, right? We yeah. can read it over a two, three year period of time and then just start over. Yeah. And I wonder if it's not so much the length of the Bible as much as when people tend to look at the Bible and understand how deep it is and how much mm-hmm. of it they don't understand very well. They may see this is just so overwhelming and they start saying it's just too big. But maybe that's just a way of saying it's it's too much for me. And, and I think that's important what you've said about it, it, when people say it's too edgy. Um, it's not that we neglect scripture, but you, you do have to be wise in what you teach first. Even if you tell, it would seem to me, some of the stories in the Old Testament that are fine to present to an elementary school child, the understanding that that child has at that age might not be up to par at that moment to fully get what that complete, you know, what that particular chapter is about. And that just takes wisdom, doesn't it? And discernment. It, it does. And it helps to know your kids, which is why it's such a great thing that God put us in families so that we can educate our own children. Um, but, you know, it is, the Bible is hard 
But I think that when we stick to those overall overarching themes, um, our kids are building knowledge. So we're building literacy in our kids and understanding of the Bible. They don't have to understand everything all at once. And I think that the reason that I advocate for, for being able to have permission to skip a story if you're really uncomfortable with it is I talk to hundreds, um, thousands of parents about teaching the Bible. And a lot of times they will get to something they're stuck on and just stop. Hmm. And so if there is a story that you really feel your child just isn't ready for, and just with the understanding that you're going to go through the Bible again with your kids, um, it's okay to skip it and then go through the Bible again and read it the next time when your kids have a better understanding of Scripture and a better understanding of who God is and His story of salvation. So um, I I think it's okay to have permission not to be perfect as you're taking your kids through Scripture. And and the Bible is going to raise questions for your kids, and it's okay to tell them, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but let's explore and I'll get back to you or we can figure it out together, either one. Well, right. And it would seem what you're really trying to do with your kids in order to instill the love of the Word of God in them is you get into it. The point is to Mm -hmm. read it. It's Mm -hmm. not that I have to do it this way or that way every single day and I have to do the same pattern or the same program that perhaps uh, the family next door is doing with their devotional and they're doing it right and I'm doing it wrong. What you're really doing is introducing your your, your kids to the Bible so they understand what it's all about. And one thing I want to get into to when we come back from this break, Danica, is this really important point that what the Bible is about Jesus. And from beginning to end, we're learning the plan of salvation because the most important thing that you want to get out of your Bible study time with your children is to make sure that they're saved from their sin. We're going to come back. Danica Cooley, help your kids learn and love the Bible. Stay with us. We'll be back. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. When Julia ended a bad relationship, she found out she was pregnant. After the father told her to get an abortion, this mom was confused and didn't know what to do or who to talk to. I just knew that if I got an abortion, a part of me would be broken. Julia was referred to a preborn center where she was counseled and supported with the strength that she needed to choose life. I couldn't imagine my life without him. Because of them, he's here. We're going to get through it and it's going to be okay. Preborn centers provide hope, love, free ultrasounds, and the gospel of Jesus Christ to moms like Julia. 
Preborn truly is the alternative to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, 855-402-2229, or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, I think this is such an important subject. If you have children, you're going to want to stay tuned. Help Your Kids Learn and Love the Bible is the name of the book from Danica Cooley, who is joining me. And we're talking about some tips and ideas for how to really instill the love of the Word of God into your kids, which can be a daunting task. But do you, I'm asking really, I think probably for a lot of parents, Danica, when I pose this question, but do you do with your kids, for example, an overview, uh, especially when you're getting going, of saying kids, this is God's word, and the bottom line of God's word is to reveal Jesus to us. The most important thing is that you understand you're a sinner and you need a savior and that Jesus is Lord. Do you do that kind of an upfront presentation to the kids so they kind of understand where you're going as you're telling all of these stories and going through different passages with them? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I was talking earlier about the overarching Um, themes of scripture. And I actually quiz my kids on that. I'm like, so what are the themes of scripture and why are we reading God's word? What does it tell us? But I also, every time I had to discipline my kids, um, I I would bring the gospel into it. So um, if they did something they weren't supposed to, even when they were very young, I would say, I am so sad that you didn't obey me. And when you obey me, that is a command from God. So now you've broken that command from God. And that is separates us from God when we do that. And that is so sad. Yeah. But God wants to be with you so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. And if you believe in Jesus and you confess him with your mouth, you'll be saved and you'll be with Jesus forever. And isn't that exciting? Mm. And then I would say, and now if you do that again, you can't come in this room without me or whatever it was, (laughs) you know, but I would just present the gospel and we would talk about it as they got older, obviously not quite the same voice, but, um, you know, and those were the first verses we would memorize is the ones having to do with salvation and the gospel, because that's what we all want for our kids. And that is, the Lord wrote Scripture for us, His inspired Word through the 40-plus authors, so that we would know His plan for salvation. So I want my kids to know that. Yep. Um, yeah, and it is appropriate to tell our kids. I have a lot of parents that will email with concerns about telling their kids that they are sinners. Our kids know they have consciences. They yeah. know that they're not doing right. And it is so important that we tell them that there's hope. Yes. So that's what the gospel is. It's hope. So of course. we need to tell our kids that. I agree with you. Sin and grace. It's very important to understand uh, both of those concepts. Now, when you are doing biblical instruction with your kids, and I'm sure this comes up a lot, you have different age groups, especially for homeschooling moms. You have a child who's three and five and seven and nine and 11, who knows how many. Uh, this is a little bit more of a challenge, especially if you're trying to do the different age groups. Do you do Bible instruction individually? Is that a better approach or is it better to have all of them together and you just come up with some kind of a lesson that's going to fit everybody to some degree? So um, for, for homeschool families, we're used to teaching up. So we just 
we just, with the Bible, would teach up. So I would read the chapter to my older kids, and um, like I had my nieces in my home for a while, and they would listen, and I'd ask questions um, to my boys, and my nieces were like toddlers, and I would hear their little voices in these sweet little voices answer the questions, because kids can understand more than we think. And when my kids were three and four, I started playing my younger kids. I started playing a um, an audio Bible that was in the ICB, which is a children's version, but it is the Bible. And they would come up to me with the most amazing questions. But I also think that for our younger kids, we want the Bible to be fun and to be exciting. And I think there are so many things we can do to tweak what we're already doing in our home. Like I, when I cook dinner, I would put on um, a short video for my kids. We're not a big TV family, but it would be 30 minutes. Well, I started putting on uh, what's in the Bible with Buck Denver and they would learn about the Bible in a fun way. And they would learn these catchy songs Mm -hmm. about the judges or, um, you know, other things that had to do with the Bible. And they learned Christian history. And it was just a small tweak of something I was already doing. um, And my kids learned about the Bible at the same time. And so we had those kind of things at different age ranges for them. Yeah, and that's I would good. read I, w- I would read Bible storybooks to the toddlers, you know, but we would include them in our Bible time too. Yeah, those are some really good ideas. All, all of those resources are really helpful to kind of back up what you're doing with your basic Bible reading. Now, do mm-hmm. you work at all with instilling the trustworthiness of the Bible in your kids? Because when you look at these stats on on teenagers or young adults in college leaving the church and they didn't really know the Bible to begin with, so they didn't really feel like that was something they were missing. And then they go on the internet and they hear, oh, the Bible has, oh, it's just full of contradictions. And it's just, oh, it's a terrible book and it's just full of myths. How do you guard against that when you have your kids at home to teach them, no, the Bible is authoritative and it's trustworthy and it's Mm -hmm. the most amazing book that's ever been compiled. How do you convey that to your children? Um, So starting when they were really little, I would hold up the Bible and be like, this is a history book of the universe, and it was written by God for you so that you would know His plan for salvation. And that would be my presentation before we would start. Um, so I was able to teach them that the Bible is inerrant and infallible and inspired, which is the doctrine of Scripture. Right. And we would talk about how it is sufficient and clear and authoritative and necessary for salvation. So we would talk about those things. And then as my kids got older, we would um, take time like on a Saturday um, just to read a chapter of a book that would reinforce um, some sort of apologetics or theology. Um, So we went through a bunch of books that way, and I would just read it to them while they were already eating, you know, so they were kind of stuck at the table, or we would listen to something on audiobook while we were driving. Um, So I do think those things are are really, really important. That's great. Have you seen fruit being born out of some of these techniques that you've used to instill the Bible and the love of the Bible in your kids? Yes. And it's, it's so encouraging to see our kids start to display fruit. I know this, this last year has been really tough, yeah. and it was tough for my kids. And I was able to see them take that biblical theology and biblical worldview and their relationship with Christ and apply it to their lives. And um, that was really encouraging for me. That's neat. Um, 
But, you know, Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 says that um, God says as as he plants seeds and waters it and um, vegetables and plants come forth, so is his word. So as he sends it forth, it will accomplish his purpose. So we can rely on that promise. We might not know where God's purpose for our kids is, but we know that his word will fulfill his purpose in their lives. Absolutely. Yep. That's the promise we're all counting on and and believing. (laughs) You have to. You have to trust the Lord Mm -hmm. that the way he found us, he's going to find our children as well. And and being faithful in presenting his word and reading through it and studying through it with our kids is so vital. What about praying the word together, Danica? How do you do that? That's a really important thing as well. Yes. That has been such a great thing for our family. Um, we we will take, usually we go through Psalms, which is, is much easier than other parts of the Bible. Um, and we skip the imprecatory Psalms and the Messianic Psalms. So anything that is about Jesus or that is like condemning, um, you know, neighboring tribes, we just skip those Psalms. But we will each take a verse and pray it over somebody. So um, we will go through and and just change the words and pray the idea of that verse for the person that we are praying for. And we pray it in a circle and then we'll pick a new person Hmm. and pray it in a circle. That's nice. That's, that's a good idea. And, and also one of the things you address in your book is studying the word when you're not feeling it. I I think probably every parent can say that, especially a homeschool mom like you, you just get tired sometimes. Maybe mom's not feeling that well, or you have other things to do and other things on your mind and you just don't feel up to the task. What kind of encouragement would you give to moms who feel that way on any given day? So I think that we prepare for those days in advance, knowing that they're going to come because we're going to derail ourselves. If we think we're going to read a chapter of the Bible every single day with our kids, is it, it just isn't going to happen. Like there's days when we, we go to church or days when somebody is ill or just that we have a really exciting day at the zoo and we get home and everybody's tired. So um, I suggest making yourself a kit. So that you are ready for those days and having things like fun videos and um, audio books and, you know, uh, crafts that are already put together with the supplies that you can do so that there's when there's days when things just aren't going right, you are still prepared to focus on the word of God, even if it's in a different way. Um, And even if you're not hands on that day, like listening to um, a Bible story that's retold in an interesting way on audiobook. That's not something you want to do every day, but it is a really neat way to focus on the Bible on the days when you just can't read that's the Bible good. with your kids. That's a good idea. How many do you have planned out before on any given day? How many could you go, can you go back to like on an index card or something? Do you keep five or six uh, kind of waiting to be used for days like that? Or how, how much material should you have kind of sitting there just in case? Well, I'm a total type A, so I have a box. <laughs> but I think if you have five or six, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a great way to get started. And then I I just had extras and then on the days when I had more energy I would use those also. So, um, you know, there's you can never have too many great no. 
supplies ready to go. Yeah, exactly. From one type A to another. I hear you, sister. I'm cold. <laughs> I totally understand. It is. But I mean, these are these are such great ideas, Danica. And I know I, I talk to parents all the time who feel frustrated. They really want their kids to know and love the word of God and the God of his word. And this is just mm-hmm. chock full of good ideas. Help your kids learn and love the Bible is the name of the book. Danica Cooley with us. Danica, great to have you here. God bless you and keep up the good work. Thank you, Janet. You bet. God bless you. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. It is really hard to overstate the significance of the American Revolution, not only for the United States, but for the cause of freedom that has followed throughout the world. But were it not for the people who were willing to fight for freedom, there could never have been a revolution. And so today we're going to take a look at some of those very important people who helped shape both the new country and the world itself. Joining us now to help us do it is Pat Williams, who is retired as Senior Vice President of the NBA's Orlando Magic. He has more than 50 years of professional sports experience has written more than 100 books, including his latest, which is called Revolutionary Leadership, Essential Lessons from the Men and Women of the American Revolution. Pat, great to have you with us. How are you doing? Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our chat and uh, nice to catch up with you. Yeah, great to have you here. Well, usually when we reflect on the American Revolution, we think of George Washington or Alexander Hamilton. You're also focusing in, though, on some people who weren't so famous. Why take a look at different types of people who inspired and helped fight for freedom? Well, Janet, once we dug into this process and began to learn about the leadership qualities of some of these people, it began leading down different trails. And and we, we spotted uh, Lafayette, and we spotted uh, uh, Henry Knox, right, and we spotted uh, General Nathaniel Green, etc. And uh, and we found out how how vital they were to us winning the war. And uh, and and in the middle of all this, there were a number of women that we we uncovered, yes, and 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 saw their leadership skills. It was a fascinating process, but in the, in, at the end of the day, uh, we came to one conclusion. Without these people and their leadership capabilities, uh, we would not have a country today. Yeah, that's right. We just wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, there would be no United States of America. Yes. If it, if it wasn't for uh, these remarkable leaders. Totally the right. The British had more of everything. The British had better weapons. They had more soldiers. They had a big navy. They had everything. But... Uh, but we had better leaders, and yeah. that's why we won. Yeah, that, it's such an important subject, leadership in and of itself. You mentioned, for example, Henry Knox, whom you called the gold standard of American know-how. Tell us a little bit about him, his noble train of artillery. It's really an interesting story about Henry Knox. Well, he was an interesting guy. He was a big, heavy-set young man, 21 years old when all this started. And he, uh, he ran a bookstore. 
uh, he he loved books, and he had this bookstore, and it was very popular. But now the war breaks out, and he volunteers, and uh, General Washington uh, took a liking to him. And uh, and so here's the situation. The war's about to pop in Boston. That's where the British had arrived. And, uh, and, and so a plan was made up in Fort Ticonderoga, upstate New York. There had been an earlier victory, and, and there was all sorts of ordnance there. Uh, cannons and, uh, you know, everything that you could want. But how do you get it from Fort Ticonderoga to Boston in yeah. those days? How do you do that? Right. So Henry Knox volunteered. He said, I'm going to put a team together, and I'm gonna, we're going to go up there, and we'll figure out a way to drag it all the way down to Boston <laughs> in the dead of winter. And, and, and darn if they didn't do it, Janet. I don't know. Thinking about it, they loaded that up. It was you know, tons and tons of equipment. I guess they had horses and mules, you know, oxen pulling it, wow. men. Yeah. Uh, and somehow or other, it took weeks, but they got this heavy artillery equipment and, and posted it up in Boston, looking down over the city. And, and uh, long story short, the, the British saw it and decided, maybe this would not be a good place to start the war in, in depth. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, they, and they mounted up and they left. Wow. And now they headed down to New York eventually where they, uh, you know, they, they really had some major victories. But, uh, but Boston was spared. And, and Henry Knox was the key person, a young man in his early 20s hmm. who led that effort to get all this equipment down there so General Washington could, could post it up. And, and, you know, that started a long-term relationship. And, and, and when Washington first became president... Uh, Henry Knox was a key person in his cabinet. Mm. And when you talk about Fort Knox in Kentucky, yes. well, that's the Henry Knox I've just talked about. Yes, yes. And a lot of people maybe have never heard that story, but it kind of brings back this important lesson, as you say, that great leaders can step up at any age, which is applicable in our own age. Just because you're young doesn't mean that you can't do something important. That's important because if you are a great leader later, you might also have been a great leader when you were young, and that should be encouraged. Janet, I, I, you hit it right on the head. And, and that's why I'm, I'm all for schools and churches, uh, youth groups. I'm all for them starting to teach and educated youngsters on, on what it takes to be a great leader. That's great. Uh, and age is not really the issue. Yes. Uh, we need uh, youngsters in uh, junior high school. Parents can have a big role here. Uh, just instructing and getting leadership started in the home. Yeah. That's right. And uh, it, it'll pay dividends because the future of our nation uh, and this competitive world that we live in, the future of our nation hinges on how well we develop this, these next generations of leaders. It's critical. Very true. Yeah, you're right about that. Well, now, when we're looking at some of the better known names in the American Revolution, we definitely want to talk about them as well. And I think of Samuel Adams, the first one you talk about, the father of the revolution, who is really an impressive man in so many ways, as many of these, all these people are in their own way. What strikes you about Samuel Adams' leadership as far as the importance that he brought to the American Revolution? Well, he was outspoken, Janet. Uh, you could almost call him a rabble rouser. <laughs> uh, he, he was up there uh, stirring things up that, that this is something we should do. Uh, keep in mind, uh, these colonies had been under <clears throat> Great Britain's rule for 150 years. Yes. 
And, and now all of a sudden, they're, they're getting upset and angry because the British are starting to tax them heavily. Uh, the British had financial problems after the French and Indian War, and, and uh, they, they needed to generate more revenue, and they thought, well, let's tax those little colonies over there. <laughs> and boy, our colonies did not like it. Right. And Samuel Adams was there beating the drum. This is not right. We can't do this. Taxation without representation. So Samuel Adams was more than just a brand of beer. <laughs> uh, he, he was uh, he was a key person at the very early stages of the American Revolution, and he's a he's a man you definitely need to know about. That's why we had him uh, featured, you know, very very early in the book. He, he he did his best work at the very early part of the Revolutionary period. Well, he's encouraging, too, and kind of is a good opposite of who we just talked about with Henry Knox, that he, he actually was a failure early on. He, he wasn't a very good businessman, and he didn't look like he really had the goods to be as important as he ended up being. So that's kind of encouragement on the other end of the scale, that just because you are not doing something significant or you feel like a failure or you were a failure earlier on in your life doesn't mean that you can't be used for a, a key purpose for your own country when you get older. Janet, let me just point out, we, we uh, tend to idolize these, uh, these leaders of that period, uh, but they were not perfect people by any means. Right. Uh, they, they were flawed human beings. Uh, they had had their share of failures and disappointments. And, and so the, the message to leaders today is, uh, if you think you have to be perfect and have a spotless record to even think about leading anything, I, I want to dispel that. Hmm. Uh, if, if there's a situation that com- demands leadership now, uh, either in your home or your neighborhood, through your church, I don't care where it is, uh, step up and lead. Right. Uh, the world is crying out for men and women who take leadership positions. And you're going to find, by and large, the people around you want you to succeed. And, and they want to help you succeed. That's one thing I've noticed. So, so we admire these men and women from that period, and we should. But um, I don't want people to stand back and say, oh, I could never be Thomas Jefferson <laughs> right. or, or Benjamin Franklin or right. George Washington. Forget about it. Yeah. But, but you can be a George Washington or a Ben Franklin type wherever you live. Well, that's... And, uh, we need that. We need that. Yes, we certainly do. We could use some George Washingtons right about now. We're going to dive into more on this. Pat Williams with us. Revolutionary Leadership is his book. We'll come back right after this. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people. And, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger or spiritual hunger is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa. On average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. 
uh, the church had about um, about 100 people and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can, you know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible League is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. You can be the answer to a Bibleist believer praying for God's Word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and your gift right now of any size will help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are so glad to have with us Pat Williams discussing his latest book, Revolutionary Leadership, Essential Lessons from the Men and Women of the American Revolution. And we were discussing some of these important people before we went to the break, Pat. You know, you think about where our country is now, and when you're discussing the importance of leadership, and and particularly the kind of leadership that was present at the time of the American Revolution, what strikes me is without all of these people stepping up, some of whom looked like they were going nowhere in life, perhaps for a while, and they turned out to be indispensable. What kind of parallel would you draw between these people you've written about and the need for leadership now when many of us really believe the United States is in crisis and in need of saving once again? Uh, I think I would say step up and lead. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Don't be reluctant. Don't wait until you're, you're perfect. Yeah. Uh, when this situation arose with Great Britain, these men and women stood, stood up who, wherever they were in life. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting, uh, Janet, they, they each seem to have a, a great strength that, that when merged together, uh, they, they, they formed a really good team. Mm. For example, um, Thomas Jefferson was, was a very poor public speaker, <laughs> but boy, could he write. Yes. So he wrote. Uh, Patrick Henry, outstanding public speaker. And so he spoke out. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Love that. That had a big impact on people. Yes. Benjamin Franklin, let's, let's call him a handyman. <laughs> uh, he was originally a printer, uh, but he, he was a creative guy and he did a lot of interesting things. And the only person of all these founding fathers that had a military background, well, it was George Washington. Hmm. And, and even though John Hancock wanted to be that military leader, he was passed over and, and it went to Washington. Uh, he, had a, he was the only one that had a military uniform. Hmm. <laughs> and he had a presence, Janet. He was six foot two. And, and when they'd say when he walked into a room, all eyes turned to him. <laughs> And uh, he he rightly earned the the title, the father of our country. And and so each one of these men and women seemed to do something particularly well. 
And when you brought all that talent together, it really formed a, a very, very good team. Oh, for sure. You know, it's funny when you talk about Benjamin Franklin and you call him the first American in the chapter that you've written here on his life. One of the takeaways that you've listed for Benjamin Franklin, these leadership lessons are great leaders are readers. And boy, that really struck me because I'm a big uh, bookworm myself and I happen to love books and, and really believe that it's, it's very, very important for everybody to be a reader. And yet we're in an age where people might read their phones. They might read an article here and there. They might do a little bit of reading, generally speaking, but we're not quite the readers that it would seem we used to be. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that and why it's important to become thinkers in order to understand what's going on and to be informed? Uh, Janet, I, I, I'm with you on that. I am concerned. We've become addicted to screens. Yes. Uh, particularly our young people. Uh, movie screens and TV screens and phone screens and video games and on and on it goes. Right. And and I don't think that those screens are really exercising our cranial muscle. Nope. Our brain, like when you attach a good book to it. That's right. Many, 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 many years later, Harry Truman said, not all readers will be leaders, but all leaders must be readers. Yeah. Yep, that's good. So as John Kennedy said, learning and leadership are indispensable to each other. And I think the best way to be a lifelong learner, Janet, is to be a lifelong reader. For sure. Of good books. Yep, yep. And I tell people, many times they'll say, well, what should I read? And I say, well, what are you interested in? Mm -hmm. That's what you should be reading. Uh, I read uh, Revolutionary War history, Civil War history, World War II history. Baseball uh, books, uh, Christian inspiration, uh, success books, leadership books, presidential biographies. Those are the fields I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. But if you ask me to uh, read about growing the roses or uh, ancient history or philosophy, you know, I'm dead. I'm dead in the water. <laughs> yes. So, so, so read in those areas that, that where you have an interest and then it, it, it won't be work. You'll be absorbing and enjoying what you're reading because you're interested in that topic. It is important. That's my advice. I love that advice. I think that's right on the money. You know, you had mentioned some of the women of the American Revolution, and and that's very interesting. There are a number of women that you write about in the book. Is there one in particular that stands out for you? I know, for instance, Sybil Ludington, the female Paul Revere, that one is a very good story. But of the women that you mention in your book, is there one that really rises above the others, would you say? Well, I want to talk for just a minute about Sarah Bradley Fulton. Uh, she was a key part of the Boston Tea Party. Right. Uh, keep in mind uh, that the, the British uh, had on three American built and owned ships, uh, the Dartmouth, the Beaver, and the Eleanor. How about that? Yeah, good. And, 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 and they shipped over uh, 340 cases of tea. Yes. <laughs> Uh, weighed, uh, I mean, massive, 90,000 pounds. And, and, and this gal had an idea. Let's, let's, let's take these hundred men, let's disguise them as Mohawk Indians <laughs> and, and slip onto the uh, boat with hatchets. And we'll chop open these chests and dump all of this tea worth about a million dollars into the Boston Harbor, right yeah. there on Griffin's Wharf. And, and so at 10 o'clock at night, here come these hundred men, 
slipping and slinking onto the boats, and 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 they cracked open those chests and down into the water with the tea. Incredible. And uh, what and that I, I can't begin to tell you what an impact that had on Great Britain. They were mad as a hornet. <laughs> and then there was Sarah, you know, who had this idea of, let, let's disguise them as, as these Mohawk Indians. She was a big part of the Boston Tea Party. Yeah, yeah. And uh, probably never has gotten her due, but uh, she's a fascinating lady. Well, she is fascinating. Uh, one of the takeaways there is the fact that great leaders are team builders and unifiers. That 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 is a really important characteristic of any leader, isn't it? To bring together a team, like you mentioned earlier, how important it was that there were different Americans with different skills at different times. We needed each and every one of them. Well, we did, and and uh, but but yet, Janet, it was George Washington that always set the tempo. Yes, and and you know after after the war was over and the, and we had won, Washington could have been anything. He could have been king. He could have been emperor. He could have been the dynasty. He could have been anything he wanted. But you see, Washington was really a modest man at heart. Uh, he had a humble spirit, and all he wanted to do was to go back to the farm <laughs> at Mount Vernon. That's yeah. all he wanted, yeah. and spend his life there, except as this new nation, which is just one, was, was getting started, uh, they were in chaos. And they went to Washington and said, uh, uh, General, we need you. We need you back. Get, please leave the farm and come up here to New York and, and be our first, whatever you want to call yourself. <laughs> And, and Washington said, okay, a president will be good enough. Yeah. And that's how we got the title of president for our, our leaders. Yes. And, and Washington, after four years, he was ready to go home again, but they pleaded with him. Four more years. He could have, he could have kept being president forever. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's how we got the, 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 the four-year, the eight-year rule until FDR uh, broke it during World War II because he felt he had to. But, uh, but that's how it started. So much of what Washington did at the start of his presidency is how the presidency is viewed even to this day. Very true. You're right. And I, I'm glad that you brought up that point that he could have tried to be anything, you know, the, the grand monarch, the king, and he was humble and he had good character. And, and, you know, we could use a little more humility in public service these days, don't you think, Pat? That would be something that would be good to bring back to politics, I would say. Janet, it's the most attractive of all human qualities. Yeah, it is. When, when you encounter a leader of note and, and you find out they have a sweet, humble spirit, I, I, I taped the Mike Huckabee show this week, Janet. And here's Mike Huckabee, a longtime pastor, former governor of Arkansas, two-time uh, running for president, mm -hmm. a big talk show host. Mm -hmm. But, well, you never know it. Yeah. He, 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 it's just like hanging with your buddy down on the corner. <laughs> it, it's a beautiful thing to watch outstanding, successful leaders who have that modest and humble approach. And that was George Washington to a T, even though uh, when he walked into the room, he had a powerful presence. Uh, people were just kind of awed by him. But he was humble. Yeah, that's such a good point. Pat Williams, and the name of the book is Revolutionary Leadership. Pat, thank you so much for being with us. It was wonderful to talk to you. Janet, thanks a million. So good to be with you. All right. God bless you. And thanks again for being here. Thank you, too, for joining us here on Janet Meffer today. We hope you'll tune in again next time. We'll be here, God willing. We'll see you then.
This hour has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.